Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at the first seven verses. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, if you look in the seat rack there, hopefully there's a black Bible that says NIV on it. You can pull it out. It's on page 715. We're going to look at this text today as we continue to make our way through Advent, which means arrival or the coming of Jesus, and not just the first coming, which we concentrate as we look back on Christmas, but also with the anticipation, as Brad said earlier, of the second coming of Christ. Now, as we think about uh, this, I want to talk to you today about incarnation. Do you mind saying that word with me? Incarnation. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but one of the struggles I have with the Christmas season is that I, I sometimes, you know, we talk about how we're fighting shallow uh, Christianity. Sometimes I don't fight shallow at all. I just give into it. You know, I don't know about if you're like that. Where, where, like, one of the ways that I still feel like I'm shallow sometimes is that during the Christmas season, all I want is good feelings. I just want to have good feelings. And it's tempting not to like, you know, pursue that everywhere we go. But the truth is, is that along with wanting to have good feelings, the truth is, is there's a lot of sad feelings at Christmas time. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world that is not easy. And so these things collide every Christmas and people feel the intensity of that. Maybe you do too. And so the question is, is, is God doing anything about this? Has God done anything about this? And part of what we study here at Christmas is to realize God has done something and is doing something during Christmas, but it's easy to forget. So if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you'll see before we look at Luke chapter two, is that the way Jesus has arrived, you know, we've talked about how Advent, it means the word arrive or coming. The way Jesus has arrived to bring his kingdom is surprising. The way he has arrived to bring his kingdom is surprising. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about his six-year-old nephew that when he opened the present, <gasps> the surprise, and Steve talked about how it's easy by us reading these texts over and over again not to be surprised, not to be filled with wonder anymore. Well, this week, as I studied this passage, I just realized it's the way Jesus does stuff is still just so surprising to me. Just so amazing. And we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for one main reason. We want to learn the way of Jesus. We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus in his way. Not just his words, not just his works, but in his way. There's something about the way Jesus does something that is different and it's powerful. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, before we look at this, is at Christmas, if you're following along, we celebrate his incarnation. There's that word again I want to talk to you about. At Christmas, we celebrate his incarnation as good news. Someone might say, do you have, like, any good news this Christmas? Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, we do. And it's the incarnation of Jesus. A lot of times when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the cross, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and friends, those are absolutely central. But we don't often talk about the incarnation. And what I hope you'll see is that the cross and the resurrection would not be possible without the incarnation. 
And so we're going to talk about what is the incarnation of uh, God and, and what is his incarnation about? How does it apply to our life? And so let's pray and then we'll dig in, okay? Now, Lord, I thank you that you have a word of hope this Christmas, that you take us beyond just good feelings. You take us to a place where we can know uh, your goodness personally and pass it on. And so I pray that you'll use this time as we look to you, Jesus, that you'll teach us your way and that it'll change the way we do this next week. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, let's look at these verses together, uh, verses one through seven. And I'll ask you to read verse one that's listed in the first gray box. And then when we get to the last two verses, they're found in the second gray box. So if you'd be ready to read those out loud with me. So the first one is right there. Let's read it right now from the first gray box together, full voice. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Let me continue. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now would you read verse 6 and 7 with me from the gray box? And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, First of all, what is the incarnation? If we talk about the wonder of the incarnation, it's not going to you know, create much wonder in us if we don't know what it is. Well, if you're following along in the notes, incarnation in the most simplest definition means God became human. God became human or God became flesh. Now, some of you know enough Spanish that if you go to a Mexican restaurant and you order chili con carne. You know what it means? It means chili with meat, right? So the word carne means flesh, meat, can mean body. And the idea is, is that uh, con carne means with meat, in carne means in meat, in flesh, in body. So to be incarnated is God in the flesh, God in flesh. God is a human being. This is an amazing thing. Now, last week in Steve's passage, when the angel appeared to Mary, he explained this mysterious phenomenon that Mary, even though she was a virgin, even though she'd never been with a man, would conceive by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon her and her womb would begin to have a baby in it and that baby would grow up and that baby would be God and man. Human being, unbelievable. And I've listed those verses out to the right from Luke 1. But look at what John's gospel also says here in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the word. This is how Jesus is often described, the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Notice that Jesus was with God, but Jesus is also God. Then notice verse 14, it tells us the word became what, friends? 
flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word literally means he tabernacled, he pitched his tent among us. This is an amazing picture. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. We often use these phrases, full of grace and truth. Now Jesus was God, but he became flesh. This is what the incarnation means, and this is mind-blowing. In fact, in Colossians, Paul tries to explain this even more in chapter 2, verse 9. Let's read this together. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Mind-blowing. Wow. And so part of Christmas, what we're remembering is the incarnation. Now, Luke, in these verses, what I want you to notice, a couple things that really struck me this week. First, is that the incarnation really happened. You can see that in number one in the notes. And second, what I want you to notice that's really hit me this week is the way it happened. So first, notice, if you're following along, that it really happened. What do I mean by that? I mean that the incarnation is an historic event, not legend or fantasy. I mean that the incarnation, this stuff we're talking about right now, is not just an inspiring story, okay? So if you hear uh, once upon a time, what's the very next thing you know is coming? A fairy tale, right? If you hear a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anybody here going to watch the Star Wars movie? The point is, is you're used to those starting that way. We all know that whenever we hear that, we love great stories. We just know that it's inspiring, entertaining, fascinating. It just didn't really happen. It's, it's fantasy. It's legend. Now, this is what a lot of people believe the Bible is. But Luke has already been telling us, no, 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 no. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is legend or fantasy. Now, how do we know that? Well, if you're following along, here's what I want you to see next is that Luke gives us careful details of Jesus' birth. Luke gives us careful details of Jesus' birth. Now, I hope you kept your Bible open because we're going to look at this next passage to the left and then we're going to come to another passage later. But if you turn back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we saw this when we first started the series at the beginning of this year, is he lists these four verses here and I want you to see them. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so part of what Luke is saying here is, look, I have carefully investigated this stuff. I got this from eyewitnesses handed down. You can read this with a sense of certainty that I did a thorough job and I've been careful. This is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, friends. This really happened. Now, where do I get that? Do you notice how the first verse we read together Do you notice how we read? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Did Caesar Augustus ever live? 
Did Julius Caesar, who was his adopted father, ever live? Yes, we know that. We know that the whole Roman world, in fact, a guy came up to me after the service and said, did you realize that there only was 10 months in Rome, in the Roman calendar, until they decided to honor both Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, and that's why we have July and August. Friends, not only that, but did you know that the whole world's calendar eventually was changed in these days? Because before Christ, it was B.C., and after Christ, it was Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, A.D. This is a historical event, friends. It really happened. Now, whether or not you like that it happened, whether or not you believe that it happened, I just want to appeal, appeal to you that it really happened. And this is one of the things that is so powerful. And again, he gives other details. And again, all these things, I just want you to notice that Luke is not saying this is inspiring, but it didn't happen. He's saying it really happened. And this is what makes it extra amazing. Now, I'll just say this, that some of you may say, well, I'm not sure I can trust the Bible yet. I don't even know if I can trust Luke. I mean, Luke says this, but is Luke reliable? And if that's your question, I'm glad you have questions like that. And here's what I want you to know. You don't have to be afraid of those questions. There is a theologian named Richard Bauckham from England who is a tremendous scholar and who has done a lot of research in this. There's a book called Jesus, A Short Introduction that you can pick up. It's a paperback and you can read and you'll see that there is a lot of scholarly work that shows that this is excellent history in what he records in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, let me move on to the next thing and, and talk to you about this. Not only did it really happen, but here's what I was struck by this week is the way it happened. Now, Part of what hits me about Luke's gospel is that in these short verses, he basically gives us the Christmas account of what happened. And the way it happened is just, in just a few words, what Luke records is so intriguing of the way it happened. If you're following along, here's what he says in short, is that Jesus came to earth as a baby and was laid in a manger. Jesus came to earth as a baby and was laid in a manger. Now, again, I know that the birth of children is a source of tremendous joy and also the source of tremendous pain. So whether or not you've had children or are related to people who have children, I, if you've ever held a baby, you know that the first thoughts that come to your mind are, they are so soft. And the second thought that comes to your mind is, but they're so vulnerable. Oh my goodness. And the Bible says, is that when God wanted to deal with the problem of evil and suffering, he came as a baby. And then this incredible line that was sometimes we've so romanticized, and they laid him in a manger. Now, the manger, friends, I know our Christmas cards have made it look really clean and really nice, and it just wasn't so. Um, I, a lot of times, the reason why we think that Jesus was born in a stable is because a manger is a feeding trough, and therefore there must have been animals around. And whether he was born in a stable or he was born in a cave or where he was born, all those things that Luke doesn't tell us. We just know that they didn't have anything nice to lay him in. So they laid him in a manger. 
This is an amazing thing. And so Kent Hughes writes this. He says, in Bethlehem, the accommodations for travelers were primitive. The Eastern Inn was the crudest of arrangements. Typically, it was a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure and opening into a, onto a common yard where the animals were kept. All the innkeeper provided was fodder for the animals and a fire to cook on. On that cold day, when the expectant parents arrived, nothing at all was available, not even one of those crude stalls. And despite the urgency, no one would make room for them. So it was probably in the common courtyard where the traveler's animals were tethered that Mary gave birth to Jesus with only Joseph attending her. Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did, seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail. All that would either make a man curse or cry. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Now listen to this last part. It was clearly a leap down, as if the Son of God rose from his splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, irradiating light, and dove headlong, speeding through the stars over the Milky Way to Earth's galaxy, where he plunged into a huddle of animals. Nothing could be lower. Wow. God's son stepped down, 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 down to a manger where we live. And he came. His arrival, the way he did it, is amazing. Why was he in a manger? If you're following along, there was no place and no room for him. There was no place and no room for him. Now, you need to know that, again, all the Old Testament prophecies that had talked about how the Messiah would come, somehow it was just easier to ignore some of the ones that would talk about the fact that he might not come like an expected king. He might not come in style. He might not come in pomp. He might not come with pizzazz. He might come quietly, and he might come under the radar. But if you look at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, you'll see these verses about the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is an appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. You see, the reason there was no place, no room, is because he just wasn't important in the world's eyes. He didn't come that way. He flew under the radar, and because of that, a lot of people were looking the wrong way. 
Bruce Larson writes this, have you ever looked for lodging in some strange city and found only no vacancy signs? A few years ago, my wife and I went to Atlanta for a conference in the hotel in which we thought we were registered wouldn't take us. They told us repeatedly, sorry, we're filled. We're with a, we were with a friend who overheard all this and offered to help. Approaching the desk clerk, he said that he was with a certain well-known firm and that he wanted a room for some friends. Somehow, one was found. Our friend explained, there's always room if you belong to the right company. Well, Mary and Joseph did not have any right connections. There was no room. And Jesus came to earth as a baby laid in a manger. Why? Because there was no place, no room for Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to notice if you're following along. Luke details how Jesus came to earth poor and lowly. Whenever you read the Christmas account, what should strike you is the way Jesus came. And the way Jesus came was lowly. I'm not impressed. If I'm going by the world standards, are you? Oh, he didn't pull that one off very well. That's not a fancy place to stay. Could have done better. But Jesus chose to come lowly to the lowly, for the lowly. And he came poor and lowly. Now, again, we're not used to this, but there's lots of ways to tell that Joseph and Mary didn't have any money. One is that they didn't get a room and that no one worked hard to find them a room because they weren't impressive that way. But even if I list out to the right there, verse 24 later in the chapter, which we'll see uh, if we read further, but Notice that what happens is, is that when they eventually bring Jesus to present him uh, there at the, uh, the temple, as they walk in, they come with an offering. Now, in the Old Testament, God made provision for people that had money and didn't have money so they could still bring an offering and still have dignity. And for the poor, the poorest of the poor, they were allowed to bring two pigeons, two doves as part of their sacrifice when they presented their child to the Lord. Guess what? Mary and Joseph brought the poor offering. So Luke's making all kinds of details and says, this is the kind of family that Jesus came into. Friends, if you've ever had financial struggles, do you know what this means? Jesus knows what that's like to be in a family like that. He knows what it's like to be born on the wrong side of the tracks. He knows he was born poor and lowly. He came that way. Now, the reason why this struck me, the way of Jesus, is that Jesus had so many options. Why did he pick this way? And as I think about this this Christmas, what I want you to notice is this next line, is that for in God's kingdom, the way up is down. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. I think we have Isaiah 57 verse 15, where God actually talks about some of this here. He says, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, he says, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, God says, though I live on high, I also have a heart for the lowly. 
I'm not just a God who's disconnected and unconcerned. I'm a God who, though I am a great and mighty and majestic God and no one can scale my majesty, I also know how to live among the lowly. My heart is with the lowly. It's an amazing thing. And so when you think about that, there's a statement that E. Stanley Jones, a great missionary, said years ago. I love this quote. He said, since God is found at the lowest rung of the ladder, there's hope for how many people, friends? Everybody. See, if it's down here, then there's hope for all of us. If it's up here, there's only hope for some of us. Jesus came, and he got down on the lowest rung of the ladder. That's how he came. That's his way. Oh, my goodness. What a way. And so later, when he would teach his disciples about the way of God, he taught them a parable. And we're going to look at the larger text of this later in January. But I want to just ask if you'd turn to the right now to Luke 14. I want to ask you to read with me Luke 14, 7 through 11. So if you just turn to the right there and uh, notice this, how Jesus applies this whole lowly thing to our own lives. So it says, verse 7, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. Now, these were religious people. So these are not people that had no idea of God. But he said, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Jesus is incredibly practical. Have you noticed this? If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And let me just say one thing about that right there, friends. Sometimes I know maybe you're tempted to think, well, this stuff works in here, but out in the real world, oh, it's different. This is a spiritual law. When you and I exalt ourselves, it may work for a while, but it won't work for very long because God, his kingdom operates differently than the kingdom of this world. And he made it like gravity to work this way. So he says, look, take the lowest place. Take the low place. I took the low place. Now I want to teach you how to take the low place because, and I don't know about you, but the lowest place for most of us is the hardest place. Anybody relate? The lowest place I've been taught my whole life is to avoid that like the plague, right? And by living in this world. I don't mean my parents taught me that, but I'm saying is this world just teaches you that. Go, like avoid that. Go for the high place, not the low place. Go for the highest place if you can, not the lowest place. Now there's nothing wrong with wanting the highest place, but if we decide to go after that, we'll miss what Jesus wants us to see this Christmas. And so if you're following along, here's what I want you to see, is to redeem us from sin, Jesus took the low place. To redeem us from sin, Jesus took the low place. Imagine yourself violated by someone. I don't just mean 
they slight you. Imagine that they do something absolutely unjust and criminal to you. Once they do that, that will create a gap between you and your perpetrator. When that gap is created, simply saying, I'm sorry, will not be adequate to close that gap. We know this. All of us have a sense of justice in our hearts, don't we? The only way to close that gap would require something far more serious to be done. And I don't know about you, but I've had some things done to me and I've done some things to other people that I'm not proud of. But the point is, is that what happens when you and I violate each other is small pickings compared to what the Bible says we have done to violate God. We have literally treated the most important person in the universe carelessly and actually with pride and arrogance and disobedience. That's why Isaiah 53 says, is that although we looked at him and thought he was nothing to be attracted to, look at how Isaiah 53 goes on and finishes the next few verses. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, not God's way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did God close the gap? He took the lowest place. He came, instead of leaving us in our sinful selfishness and the consequences that we deserve, he placed them on his son. Vulnerable, killable, Jesus. And Jesus took that so that he could offer us forgiveness. I like what Tim Keller has written. He says, he broke in and God has become human, weak, mortal, killable, vulnerable. When he dies and rises, we are saved. Jesus says, look, you could never, never climb up the ladder to what you should be. Believe in me and I will take you where you need to go. That's a very different thing than religion teaches us. So here at the beginning of the beginning, we see the pattern. Here he is put into a rough wooden feed trough, but later he'll be nailed to a wooden cross. Here he's rejected by an innkeeper. Later the whole population will yell, crucify him. Here he's wrapped in old claws, but then he'll be stripped naked and his last possession, his garment will be sold and he'll be killed. As it were, he'll be rejected by the world, but on the cross, he's even rejected by his father. He gets what we deserve. And then he goes on and says, Jesus Christ was rejected so you and I could be accepted. There was no room for him so you and I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now what does that mean? In conclusion, let me just say it means there's hope. Believe in him and there is hope. There's light in the darkness. It's the end of a tunnel, but we, will we get there? If we get there, we'll find there's hope. And what I want to say is, friends, the lowest place is the place that most of us avoid, but it's in the lowest place of humbling ourselves and contritely admitting that we deserved to be separated from God, that that gap did not deserve to be closed, but Jesus has closed that. It's in those moments that we find grace. In the lowest place is the greatest grace. 
That's what he wants us to know this Christmas. So how do we bring this home? Let me just say this, first of all, that if this is true, then it demands a response. It's not like someone giving you a ham sandwich and you say, okay, that's nice. It requires a response. If this is what God has done on our behalf, then what we do with Jesus this Christmas really does matter. What we do with his incarnation really does matter. Whether or not it becomes the way of our lives or it's just the way it was for Jesus, this is the response. And so let me just remind you that Mark 1.15, as Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, he said this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Wow, he brings good news. So what is it? What do we celebrate this Christmas? How do we do that? First, I've listed the same idea two weeks ago, but first it means to acknowledge what God has done. So if you're following along, are you able to say, Jesus, your God who came in the flesh? Jesus, your God who came in the flesh. I, friends, I don't know if you know this, but actually whole cults are developed out of disbelieving this. There's whole cults that teach Jesus didn't come as a human being, I mean, he may have, you know, you know, for a little while, phantom looked like he was in a body, but he never really became a human being. And friends, that's just an outright lie. That's a falsehood. But cults are taught this, and in 1 John 4, we're shown how powerful this is. Look at these verses, if you would. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says this, Dearly loved friends, don't always believe everything you hear. Just because someone says it is a message from God, test it first to see if it really is. This is the idea of testing the spirits. For there are many false teachers around, and the way to find out if their message is from the Holy Spirit is to ask, does it really agree that Jesus Christ, God's son, actually became a man with a human body? If so, then the message is from God. If not, the message is not from God, but from the one who is against Christ. Friends, think about this with me. If Jesus is not God's son come in the flesh, then he cannot be the sacrifice for our sins. His body cannot be laid on the cross. His blood cannot be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But he did come. And he did come in a body. And not only that, once he was placed in a tomb, in a body, because of that, on the third day, he had a bodily resurrection, which means that now our bodies, though they die, can be raised again with Christ. Therefore, we have good news to proclaim to the world because he didn't stop there either. When he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and now sits there to ever live to intercede for you and me. And even in heaven, his scars are still visibly seen in his hands and feet. And friends, he sent the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit could now live in every person who repents and believes in Christ. And that means that by his body, he made it possible to now live in our bodies. Does anybody need the incarnation? The second thing, though, means to repent. Most of the time, the reason why we won't accept this is because we've believed a lie. Repentance means to change our minds. It's not just beating ourselves, our feelings, sorry. It means to believe differently. And so repent means I've believed a lie that the low place equals no place for me. And this is what happens. We live in a world that goes, oh, no, 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 don't take the low place, Jeff. You take the low place, you lose. That's no place. That's a lie, friends. Jesus already showed that the low place is the grace place. The low place is where life really changes. 
and yet we avoid it. I don't know about you, but again, growing up as a kid in a church, when I heard the Holy Spirit call me to the low place, I fought it. I still do as an adult sometimes, but here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that God wants to change my mind, that that's based on a lie, that the low place is no place for me, not true. The low place is where Jesus is. And I can know him deeply there. And I don't know about you, but the low place is where most people are. And therefore, we can identify with the lowly if we're willing to take the low place. But we've got to decide whether we're going to change our mind. And it's a battle. It's a struggle, isn't it? But that means to repent and believe. And what does believe mean? It means to trust the Lord enough that he knows what he's talking about. So believe means I trust you to take the low place with you. I trust you to take the low place with you. And so part of what happens is that the Lord's wanting to change our mind that what the world is teaching us is really life is that I sense this Christmas the Lord is saying, I took the low place and now I'm inviting you. Will you take the low place with me this week, this Christmas? Remember, sometimes we just want good feelings but what he wants to teach us is away, away. So like even this morning, I was thinking to myself, if I walk up here and stand in front of you, everything inside of me wants to impress you. So my prayer is, Lord, let me come to serve these people instead of impress these people. I still don't get it right all the time. I'm just trying to be honest. But I can tell whenever the Lord says, that's good, Jeff, take the low place. Um, yesterday, about seven or eight of us from Cherry Hills made a drive to Southern Illinois to stand with a family in our church that's in a low place right now because they lost a loved one. And I was just so struck by the fact that because Jesus has come in a body and done what he's done, that now we could go in our bodies and just be there. And friends, I've been on the other side of that when my loved ones died and someone showed up, a brother or sister in Christ, and all they did was show up. But when they showed up in their body, it was like Jesus showing up in his body for me. You know what I'm talking about right now? So when I was in high school, I've told you before, I had an opportunity to... Uh, you know, have a really good job. And one day they needed help in the kitchen area cafeteria. They asked if anybody wanted to wash the dishes. And I thought, hope somebody that needs that job gets that job. And the Lord showed me, I want you to take that job. And I go, I have a good job. He says, I want you to still take this job too. And as I washed dishes that day, that first time I remember thinking, it's time for me to get down. It's time for me to get low. It's time for me. And that's how I met some people I would have never met and I found that God's grace was working in the low place. And that's where God's grace wants to work in your life and mine. But will we believe him and trust him enough? Take the low place. So here's the last thing I want to show you. Philippians 2, before we sing, this was a hymn of the early church about the incarnation and how it applies to our lives. Here's what it is. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest. It doesn't say don't look out for your interest. It says don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that though he was God, though he was God, 
He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself even further in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We worship someone who took the lowest place and now wants to teach us the way of Jesus. How would that look in your home this week with your family if you took the low place instead of the high place? What would it look like at your job or your school if you sat with someone that the world says is not important? What would it look like if you and I took the low place with Jesus this Christmas out of gratitude for what he's done for us? Amen. Amen.